Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here at the Canton House. I'm with Chris, the Professor Ronaldo. Chris Ronaldo is many things to many people. He's an expert in bar operations, a superior bartender, spirit guide, or cocktail evangelist. Ronaldo is a great listener. I've seen him size up a person in a moment. He's also fortunately a great storyteller, an anecdotal raconteur extraordinaire. Chris Ronaldo is a writer, humorist, music aficionado, and an empresario of good food. Chris Ronaldo, thank you so much for meeting and eating with me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I put all these labels on you. Is there a label that you most subscribe to? Actually, um, probably just bartender or barman. Barman. Yeah. Is there a qualification? Is there something that a bartender, a good bartender, must be or do? I, I think uh, maybe some of the things you mentioned, you have to be a good listener. When I, when I teach or I train bartenders or students, I always say that it's, I never know which the, which the right brain and the left brain are, but it requires both. Hmm. You have to have the, the technical, the measurements, the recipes, the, um, the routine, uh, everything from prepping a bar to opening a bar, or what have you. But you also have to have uh, innovation and creativity. That can get a little bit reinventing the wheel-ish, especially in what they call now the craft cocktail culture. When I, when I interview a potential bartender, I don't like the word craft or the term craft cocktail. Every cocktail you make should be a craft cocktail. <laughs> you know, there's nothing special. But, but there is a I tend to focus on classic cocktails that have been around for hundreds of years, Manhattans, martinis, some of the neo-classics, margaritas and whatnot. And then what I'll do is I'll flip the script. I'll take the gin out and put rum in or take the rum out and put bourbon in. And that's what I think uh, good bartenders do, have, have done through history. I mean, I'm a big fan of Trader Vic, uh, who may or may not have created the Mai Tai. And that's what he said. If you learn the basic 10, if you learn your sours, you learn your... Your fizzes, everything evolves out of those, and it's just a matter of changing ingredients or possibly uh, measurements. Now, I know you're someone who you listen to the person and what they want, but would you say that there is a king of cocktails, the greatest cocktail? Um, You really can't because, because... You know, when, when a guest walks in and they don't know what they want, I'll say, what do you like? Do you like tequila? Do you like gin? And what, 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 what I have as a, being kind of a voracious reader and literally a student of history, my degree is in history, you know, cocktails like anything else go through, go through almost like a, they're cyclical almost, right? Vodka was big in the 70s and 80s. Bourbon made a comeback. Prohibition, gin was popular because you could make it mm. and you didn't have to age it. So the bathtub gin. So I'll, I'll ask him, but, but you know, people, people ask for a, a martini and 
most Americans think that's vodka, where the, the true martini was gin, and it was, and it, some people will order a, a Bombay Sapphire martini, and they'll say, this tastes like vermouth. I said, well, yeah, that, it's, not a, it's not a martini without vermouth. And actually, the original martini was a two ounces, two ounces. It was, it was a one-to-one -one ratio. Most now is like eight-to-one. You know, they'll put four ounces of, of, of gin and one ounce of vermouth, or, or a half ounce of vermouth, excuse me. So, but, but that's, that's, as I said, um, there, one particular, I, per, I personally, I'm a big fan of agave spirits. So I love, I love tequila. I, I, I'm a, I, used to, I used to be known in Atlanta as the bourbon cowboy uh, <laughs> when I wrote my drinking column for uh, the Atlanta Press and Creative Loafing. But uh, there's a, a very little known but gaining in popularity uh, spirit that comes out of the desert, the high desert in the southwest in uh, northern Mexico called Sotal. Mm. That is, is uh, for me, almost like a, a blank slate because it's, it's something that, even though they've been drinking it for eight, 800 years, uh, it's, it's relatively new to the, um, the mixology scene. Like many great Americans, from Frank Sinatra to Connie Francis, Jack Nicholson to Bill Brown, you're from New Jersey. Yes, I am. Wayne, New Jersey. Wayne, New Jersey. So t tell us, what would a typical day have been like when you were growing up in New Jersey? Well, it, uh, I was the, uh, I was one of seven children. My mom stayed at home and raised a family. My dad was a teacher okay. and then... Sorry. No problem. All right. I just got something. It's not your getting the full experience. Am I here? You getting you getting this? Yes. <laughs> uh, seven children, five boys. So dad was a teacher and a coach, and then later an administrator. It was you know ride your bikes, go play football with your friends. We had the we had the biggest yard, so a lot of the, the baseball, wiffle ball, football was played, depending on what season it was. And with four brothers, there was always plenty of guys. You get four more neighbors, and you have you have you know you have a team. Uh, away games, you had to be home five thirty or six or whatever it was for dinner. And uh, I think one of the coolest things about my uh, experience was that it was rare that my dad wasn't home for dinner. Hmm. You know, as I got into high school, and then I was an athlete. You know practice would run late and then I'd eat my dinner cold afterwards but it was a it was a idyllic idyllic how did you learn the art and science of bartending well it's interesting I moved to uh, Atlanta Hello. in 1988 in December of 1988 and in March of 89 a good friend of mine came down to visit for a weekend and uh, I hadn't really done a lot. I was kind of getting established in my career as a recruiter. And I, um, I said, there's this area called Buckhead. I was living over near Emory in the Toco Hills area. And uh, I said, there's this area called Buckhead. It's kind of like Georgetown where we went to school. I went to school in Maryland. And so we, we drove my 67 Galaxy to, um, to Paces Ferry Road. This, you could park on the road back then. And I, I, we saw um, there was a, a line of bars on Peachtree right at the intersection. And there was a bar called the Acme Bar and Grill. And it was owned by two guys from New Jersey, from Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. And so their, their, their sign said, a Buckhead tradition. This was in March. A Buckhead tradition since February. They had just opened. 
I walked in and they had Bruce Springsteen on the jukebox. They had a New Jersey state flag on the wall and a Garden State Parkway sign. And I said, I'm home. And I hung out there. That kind of became my watering hole. And I guess occasionally the doorman wouldn't show up. And so the owner would say, hey, go check IDs and uh, we'll cover your tab for the night until the, the, the guy gets here. And so one night he called me and he used to, he was a kind of an owner operator. So he would work one or two shifts on the bar. And he called me on a Saturday night and he said, I need you down at the bar at four o'clock. I said, what do you have, like a special event? You need a doorman at four o'clock? He said, no, I'm going to put you on the bar. I said, what, it's like a bar back? He goes, no, I, I want you to be a bartender. And I said, I've never made a drink in my life. He said, don't worry about it. He says, you're tall and you can see people. You ask them what they want. If the name of the spirit is not in the drink, you don't have to make it. <laughs> Gin and tonic, rum and coke, Jack and ginger. <laughs> you know, this wasn't a place where you went for a Manhattan. It was plastic cups and, and whatnot. But I liked it, you know. And even though I was uh, well-established in, in my recruiting, I would work a couple of shifts a couple of nights a week. And I did that for better part of the 90s. And in uh, 99, I became a dad and I had to take some time off. But uh, I would do kind of special events, fundraisers at my daughter's school and whatnot. But when I moved out to Santa Fe, I kind of cycled out of recruiting and became a full-time bartender. And I had the, I had the uh, privilege of working for two very different but very, uh, I guess, the closest things that I would consider mentors. Mm -hmm. uh, one was I worked at the Mineshaft Tavern in Madrid, and Lori Lindsay, who was the owner, just she had a great approach, the whole hospitality. But, you know, coming from Atlanta, I really didn't know how to make a margarita. You know, you put fake sour mix, margarita mix, and some tequila, and, you know, all about shaking, when to shake, when to stir. Uh, and then after the mine shaft, I worked, uh, I, I worked just as a barback for, for, for four weeks for a guy named Chris Milligan, who actually was from Georgia, had moved out to Santa Fe in the 90s. It, he, he, he was the Santa Fe barman, and he was, a, to, to watch him run a shift as both a manager and as working the service bar and chatting up guests and making drinks. He was, he was the one that really, uh, I always say that, uh, you know, I, I don't lack self-confidence or, and I don't trade in false modesty. I'm, I'm pretty good, but he was like the polish on the diamond that just, I said, mm. I can do that. I can do that. And my, my next job, I got at a, uh, the most iconic bar in Santa Fe, El Farol. And I, that's when I kind of blew up as a bartender. So, it was, you know, a lot of it was self-taught. As I said, I'm a voracious reader. I'm a collector of Hawaiian shirts. So when I was in thrift stores, if I saw a book on the history of rum or a book on how to make a Manhattan or the spirits and whatever, I've got some great old, you know, I've got a first edition of Trader Vic's Book of Food and Drink, which was published in 1946. Wow. So, and as the 21st century with YouTube and the Internet, there, there's a lot more information uh, than when I started in the early 90s making gin and tonics, rum and cokes in, in, in plastic plastic cups. So, Well, Chris, I'm going to give you one of two options, and as the guest, you can choose whichever you prefer. It's totally in your court. Would you like to pause and eat? Of course. <laughs> you don't even have to give me option number two. <laughs> <laughs> we will be right back, folks. We're back after our first round. What do you think so far? Excellent. Good. What is something that you would say you have learned about people from being a bartender? It's, it's really that they're different. Mm. 
that they're different because I was trying to say I, I was going to say there's assholes and angels on every street corner, but um, <laughs> people come in and 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 uh, never met them before. You do a good show for them, and they appreciate what you do, and it's just you make really a lifelong friend, a lifelong guest. And then there's other people that no matter, and they may be repeat guests too. No matter what you do, they they they're, they're they're chronic complainers. They're always they want some sort of ridiculous modification or and especially during the whole covid situation and coming out with all the stress that we all felt during that it was almost as if when people started coming out again they were like double entitled mm. <laughs> you know well. and and so and 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 you um you know you you take the by my first I was a busboy at a diner in New Jersey when I was a junior in high school, and old Joy, who was my boss, she said, you take the bitter with the better. <laughs> you know, just take the bitter with the better. I like and, that. And that's, yeah, that's, um, and that's what I've, 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 I've really come to learn about people. I mean, there's, I've, I've worked in, obviously, in, in Atlanta, in the South. I've worked in the in Southwest, in, in Santa Fe. I grew up in New Jersey, as I said, working in diners and spent a lot of nights drinking and really nice posh hotel bars in Manhattan and also some of the great dives that were down on the Lower East Side and, and in Hell's Kitchen. So, yeah, people are, you know, every they're like snowflakes. Everyone, you know, everyone is different. They're all the same, all part of the same group, but uh, radically different. You mm. know? Yeah. Going to your writing, yeah. why do you write? That's interesting. When I was a freshman in college, I took a creative writing course and the instructor professor said that I had good chops as a writer, and I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't see myself as a writer. And then I, I majored in history. And my senior year, I had to do a, a paper, a kind of the graduate equivalent of a thesis, where you I did a uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Escalation of the Vietnam War, which is not very exciting <laughs> <laughs> subject matter. And uh, my professor, Professor Merrill, he goes, you you have a flair for writing. You know, you should you should look into that. And uh, several years later, I was in a relationship with a woman who said to me, you need to read more and you need to write more. Hmm. And so that was when I was in Atlanta. And I, that's when I started to uh, keep a journal and the journal turned into this. And uh, maybe I, there would be something, I think my first published piece was in the old Poets, Artists, and Mad Men in 1996 in Atlanta. And it was about Bruce Springsteen, and he was going through the whole Ghost of Tom Joad phase where, hmm. you know, the whole Steinbeck and, and Grapes of Wrath. And I remember saying it, it, took a, it took a multimillionaire to teach me what it means to be middle class. Singing about the poor to teach me what it's about <laughs> middle class. And I love Bruce Springsteen. He's a, a, pheno he's a phenomenal writer. And so I, you know, and, and as, a, as a music aficionado, I just love, we were talking about Reckless Kelly. I mean, I, I just love people who can write you know, who, who, who can paint pictures with words, you know, paint pictures with words. Tom Waits is one of my all-time favorite artists. I, I saw him at the Tabernacle in 2007, and I wept wow. <laughs> watching him perform. It was just it was beautiful. So, so that's, um, and again, that's, you know, uh, one of the, um, my daughter, where I worked in Santa Fe was, Canyon Road is known for art galleries. My daughter, who, who's, who's, a, who's a brilliant artist herself, said, you know, you're, you're kind of an artist. I said, yeah, I just, I don't work in oils or pastels or 
clay, I work in tequila and gin and <laughs> scotch, you know. But again, that's what I was saying earlier about the whole the innovation and the creative aspect of it, that you have this, uh, you know, and what, what excites me about Sotal is you have this blank canvas. I mean, they're doing things with Sotal and not when I say they're doing things, I'm not talking about, you know, lime flavored vodka <laughs> or apple crown. <laughs> it, it's, it's, they are, they are aging it, but not like a reposado or an aged tequila. They're, you know, it's, it's almost like a whiskey, hmm. you know, because that, by definition, whiskey is just distilled grain that's aged in a barrel. Well, the Sotal plant is not a grain any more than the agave plant is a grain or that uh, sugarcane is a grain where we get rum or tequila or mezcal. And then you take, so this is this spirit that has nothing to do with whiskey, but you're, you're saying, but it's like a whiskey, so I'm going to approach it with, I'm going to do a Manhattan or I'm going to do an old-fashioned or I'm going to do a lion's tail. And again, I think maybe my talents, if I have any as a writer, is if you remember the article that I sent to you, is every cocktail has a story. So when I when I used to teach class, I, I, I required my students for their final that they had to create a cocktail, but it had to have a, a backstory. And I said, sometimes a story, <laughs> you, could, you could be drinking toilet water, <laughs> but with that story, it's like, wow, this is awesome. Hmm. Um, and actually, the student who who who, who got an A, she had. Uh, There's a Grateful Dead song and a Scarlet Begonia. Oh, yeah. And and her parents met at a dead show, and and I, I just said, just make sure that begonias are, you know, because some plants can be toxic. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was more the color and the of the, uh, of the song. But so anyway, so that's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's National Negroni Week. And so the Negroni is a great cocktail because it, um, unlike a Manhattan or an old-fashioned, it's not very spirit-forward. It, it's a one-one-one. Most, a martini, as I said, is three-to-one, four-to-one. And you'll have a spirit and then you'll have a mixer. But this is three equal parts. So it's one, one, one. So no one's really driving it. It's more complimentary. And it, uh, again, I don't like to sound pretentious or hoity-toity, a mixologist. But it's, it really has depth and, and complexity. Hmm. And that's when I'm creating a drink or even just making a drink that, like a Manhattan, I, I, I want to make sure that I capture that. As I said with Sotal, it's a, it's a completely new experience because... It's only been legal for about 30 years. It was illegal to distill it up in, until the late 20th century. So now uh, it's a, one of those 500-year-old overnight success stories. So, Well, this question, staying on the topic of your writing, yeah. is kind of a memorial to Norm MacDonald. This oh. is a question associated with him. Yeah. Where do you get your ideas? Uh, through life. You know, through life, uh, some, some, you know, he's only been gone, what, 48 hours and I already miss him. Mm, me too. Yeah. But the good thing is, is whether it's Charlie Watts or Norm MacDonald or Tom Petty, they're, they're kind of with us forever right. through, through their work. As I said, early on, I used to, I used to carry a notepad or I'd, <laughs> I'd come home from a, a night at Blind Willie's and I'd have Bev Naps and, and coasters with ideas written on them, I'd have to ask the server, hey, get, let me borrow your pen. So now, or I used to, uh, now I'm just so busy with the bar business, I don't really have time to write that stuff down. Although in the, in the early days of COVID, I did keep a journal that I haven't looked at since then. But just, yeah, observing and then kind of filtering it through my own experience or processing it through my own experience every once in a while. You, And as I said, that's how it started with my 
the, my, my Bruce Springsteen article. It was just something that I was, I was listening to Tom Jode and I was kind of, there was an art, there was um, a couple of newspaper articles or Rolling Stone articles. And so I tried to look at it growing up in New Jersey. And, oh, we're good. Okay. I'm, I think we're done. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, just kind of processing it through. Shall we take another, take another break? break? Yep, <laughs> we'll be back. We're eaters, yeah. not not not. Uh, well, it's, I hate that word. I hope you're not offended if I say I hate the word foodie. Oh, oh no! It, it, to me, that's like craft cocktail. <laughs> it's like you're yeah. an eater. Or, or you know what? When um, oh god, I had this young lady, and I was going to tr- hire her as a bartender, and she's boozy. Mm. I, I, I I go as far as booze forward. Like that's they're they're all boozy. Because they have booze in them. Right. <laughs> in fact, I'm on this rock throwing contest and uh, or competition and on Facebook because the big thing now is alcohol free spirits. I said, you realize that the vaporized that, that's the spirit. That's without alcohol, it's not a spirit. Right. It's a it's a soft drink, and it might be very good, it might be tasty, but it's not a spirit. You can't. That's an oxymoron. That's like alcohol free gin. Right. <laughs> it's juniper juice, <laughs> and. Uh, but yeah, when people say it's boozy, well, that's because it has booze in it. Right. Because I'm a foodie. Oh, you like food? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? You're blowing my mind. Yeah. We'll be back. We're back yet again. Do you perhaps have a favorite story from your time in the, in the profession of bartending? Uh, there are many, but actually one of my favorites happened just a, about a month and a half ago. There was the... Um, the music festival, the arts festival in Brookhaven, and Rick Springfield from the 80s played, and Collective Soul on Friday night. So it was, I was just about getting ready to close. It was around midnight. And this big guy walks in, and he's dressed in black from head to toe, and he's got a lanyard with um, his backstage credentials on it. He says to me, are you guys open? And I said, what does that sign say? neon sign open. He says, well, what time you close? I said, when I throw you out of here. <laughs> he goes, I'll be back. And he came back with, it wasn't Rick Springfield and Ed Rollins, but the rest of the band. Right. And right. What, what was funny is Rick Springfield's in his 70s now, and his band were just kind of local hired guns, most of them. And so they were all in like their 20s and 30s, <laughs> you know, covered in tattoos and piercings and whatnot. But when, when they, uh, and they, they, they were just a great, a great group. Thank you. Thank you. you. Okay, great. I, before, they were all kind of sitting at the bar, and I said, before we get started, it's not uncommon for people to refer to someone in my profession as a rock star. That guy's a rock star bartender. I said, you guys can't do what I do. All due respect. I said, my shows last 12 to 15 hours <laughs> on my feet the whole time, and I do work in seven days a week. I do you know, 345, 350 shows a year. <laughs> so I said, I can't, I don't have your chops as a musician, but to call me a rock star, no. <laughs> Any more than I would call you a mixologist. So, Well, since you brought up music again, and it's obvious that you're a music fan, yeah. you've already mentioned Tom Waits, Reckless Kelly, a few people here, Tom Petty, yeah. and you're known for having a great knowledge of music. I, I've rarely stumped you. What would you say are some of your other favorite 
all-time bands or singers, songwriters, things like that? Well, obviously, uh, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. I was a huge Clash fan coming up. I didn't appreciate the Sex Pistols in the late 70s because I was listening to Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones uh, and Bruce Springsteen. But um, but they were a great one-hit wonder, you know, the, the quintessential punk band they self-destructed but their music was powerful and com you know com completely organic and uh yeah I I, I I i i'm one of those again not snobs but i do believe there's only two types of music good music and bad music <laughs> i mean george jones some of the old johnny cash and then the collaborations between tom petty and johnny cash or bob dylan and los lobos or whatever mm -hmm. so yeah what about an all-time greatest bartender song Oh, it's interesting. There was a guy who played Sunday nights at El Farol named Chris Abeda. He was a local singer-songwriter. He did a, a mix of originals and covers. He was just him and a guitar, and he was a great storyteller, the, almost a Buddha-like figure. You know, he would just sit in this thing and, and spin these yarns. And on my last night that I worked, that we worked together, he did uh, Bartender's Blues, which was performed, most people know, from George Jones, but actually it was written by James Taylor, which I didn't know. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer, you know, uh, John Lee Hooker. That one's pretty good. And, of course, closing time, Tom Waits. <laughs> pretty much anything by Tom Waits could, could fit into the bartender uh, genre. Bad liver and a broken heart. Now, I first met you at a place called There in Brookhaven, Atlanta, a place where you can get a great meal. Yes. What is the best thing on the menu for someone who happens to wander in? Well, I, I always tell the story that everything on the menu is good, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, it's the, the, the Reuben, it, it, I've never, no one has ever left disappointed with the Reuben. And I'll tell people, come in, I love a Reuben, you can't, and I'd say, have the Reuben. But I am an Italian boy from New Jersey, and the first thing I had on the menu was the eggplant parmesan, and it is grandma figliola grade. I mean, the marinara is fantastic, it's, it's cooked just right, it's not overly cheesy and gooey but really everything the, the burgers are award-winning right now we have oysters in and they're fantastic you know oh cut, cut above yeah it's just and and as i like to tell people my drinks are pretty good too and that's and that's actually one of the the true privileges of working there is that the food is set at such a high bar that whether, whether i'm creating something on the fly for a guest or just executing a, a martini or a Manhattan, and I'm kind of famous for my Mai Tai, that, that you, you got to bring your A game, you know, and that brings them back. How important is humor? Very important. The, 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 the devil's in the details, though, because in this age of diversity and cancel culture, not everybody's got the same sense of humor. We're talking about Norm MacDonald. I think his brilliance and his authenticity was that he... There was nothing that was off limits to him. And he could do it in a manner. I, I'm a huge fan of George Carlin. And it was the same way. It was George at times could appear to be a little bit mean-spirited. But Norm MacDonald was just that deadpan delivery where he could. Thank, thank you. you. But yeah, humor, humor, is, humor is very important. I used to um, work with a server who had a reputation of being slow. And if. You know anything about the tequila? It comes in four classifications: silver or blanco, which is right out of the still. Reposado means it's rested in a barrel for three months to a year, and añejo means it's aged for, any, for over a year, one to four years. And we used to say that she'd ring in a ticket for a silver tequila. By the time she delivered it, it was an añejo. 
<laughs> what would you say is the best way to disarm an angry or disgruntled customer? Not that you have a lot of them. But well, no, no, and I, that's, it's funny because I, um, it, it happened the other night. There's a difference between being disgruntled and angry. Someone who's disappointed with service or disappointed with the meal or with my drink, that's very easy. You, you comp the drink and you apologize and say, I hope you'll, you'll give us another shot. People who are angry, they're angry when they walk into the bar. Right. You know, they're angry when they're at home. They're angry when they're driving to work. And so it's kind of hard to disarm them, so you just have to remove them from the equation. Uh, we had, I had two guys come in on Saturday night, and they had obviously been watching football all day and drinking. They ordered two whiskeys, and they were getting, like, I probably was on the fence whether I was going to serve them or not, but I gave them the benefit of the doubt because the one guy I kind of knew, you know, he had been in a couple times. They immediately got into it with a guest sitting next to them. I just walked over, took the two, <laughs> two drinks off the bar, I said, let's try this again next week. And, they, and to their credit, they didn't cause a ruckus or, uh, you know, I've, I've, it's been many years since I've had to actually physically remove someone from a bar and and the, most of the places i've worked as in my 40s and 50s we had someone who would do that and I, it would not be my responsibility to remove them from the bar mm. but yeah as i said the, you know the whole do you know who i am or oh boy yeah <laughs> no <laughs> so here's a kind of lightning round just yeah. say the first thing that pops into your head okay favorite television show of all time Madman Sopranos Breaking Bad. <laughs> I, I'll allow it. Favorite movie of all time. Oh, I can tell you it's not Cocktail with... <laughs> you know, The Godfather's great. There's so many of them. One of the things that I get, if you, if you work with me long enough, I will, if I'm trying to make a point or illustrate something, I'll say, have you ever seen the movie? Yeah, you um, do that a lot. Yeah, Platoon. There's the way things are. There's the way things ought to be and the way they are, you know? <laughs> So, anyway. A favorite compliment? A couple months ago, a couple came in, and they were both industry people, and uh, they were genuine, you know? And we, I did, again, I did the show. They had a burger, and they loved the burger, the food. I started taking them on a tour of different spirits and different drinks and telling the little history and the, the backstory to some of them. And the gentleman le left a wonderful tip, and he said, this is the best experience I've ever had in a restaurant. Wow. And I said, you know, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Yeah, that, and that's, and that's, what, that's what makes the job. You know, when you spend 16 hours a day on your feet, and my feet and my legs are constantly in pain, but when that happens, or when the, the other night I have a young lady, she comes in for the Ramos Fizz, which is a classic old drink, and there's a whole great story to it, and she comes in now twice a week for Ramos Fizz, and when you do that, when you, when you serve that Ramos Fizz, your legs don't hurt. Your feet don't hurt. You know, when somebody, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, that's why I do it. That's why I do it. My last question. If you could give advice to a young Chris Ronaldo, you could go back somehow, what would you say to him? Mm. I would, that's, uh, with <laughs> the three ex-wives, I'd be the thing. <laughs> back to humor. Don't, don't do it. No, um, uh, gee, that's um, for the purposes of this. I wish I would have gotten to this earlier, hmm. you know. But I, you know, the way I look at it, it's just I, I consider myself to be kind of a part-time or dysfunctional Buddhist. So this this is where I am right now, and this is where the universe put me. But as I said, I, I had other stuff to do. I was an aspiring football player, and so 
when that fizzled out, you know, I guess there's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say I'm not comfortable, but I don't have a lot of regrets, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't know that I would, uh, I, you know, I was always good at telling the people I loved, I loved them and trying to be the best me. There's, there's obviously a lot of tactical mistakes we make on the way, some related to humor. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, that didn't play well. But yeah, for the most part, I don't, uh, I don't know that I would, I would change much, you know, except for the obvious ones, which you can't change. Hmm. So, so. Well, Chris Ronaldo, thanks for eating with me. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Until next time. Cheers. Goodbye.